0: My last little stint last year, it took me 37 days to get a hold of someone. Because, you no, know, nobody has house phones no more. You can't call cell phones collect. You're stripped away of all of your rights before you even found guilty. And that whole time I was in segregation.
1: These are legally innocent people.
2: Welcome to CCLA's podcast, Justice Versus. I'm your host, Maria Rio. With over a decade of experience researching the criminal justice system, Jane Sprott is a professor in the Department of Criminology at Toronto's Ryerson University. Her work focuses on the operation of the youth and adult criminal justice systems, issues around pretrial detention, sentencing in Canada, and perceptions of crime and criminal justice policies. Jane has also been directly involved in federal policymaking and has spoken to amendments made to the Youth Criminal Justice Act with the Justice and Human Rights Committee. Jane, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks very much. I'm happy to be here. When someone is charged with a criminal offense and arrested, they can either be released into the community or be detained while awaiting trial. This decision requires a balance of interests, including the accused person's liberties, the protection and interests of the community, and public perception of the criminal justice system. When someone is charged with an offence, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms guarantees their innocence until they are proven legally guilty. Jane, what's the difference between holding someone in pretrial detention compared to them serving a sentence? If someone is
1: sentenced and serving a term of imprisonment, they've been found guilty of an offence. They've either pled guilty to doing it or were convicted at a trial. If you're a In prison as a remand prisoner, you're legally innocent. There is no conviction that has taken place. So police have charged you with an offense and then have decided to detain you rather than releasing you through other means, through an appearance notice or summons or something like that. So that means that wherever you are, whatever was going on, it all stops and you're placed in custody. And then you have to have a bail hearing in front of a judge or a justice of the peace, to determine if your detention should continue.
2: A few years ago, CCLA spoke with James Favelle while working on our bail report, Set Up to Fail, Bail and the Revolving Door Pre-Trial Detention. Today, James is a third-year student at Ryerson University working towards his bachelor's degree in social work. He's also an active member of the Canadian Addiction Counselor Certification Federation and a registered social service worker in Ontario. He focuses on integrating the principles, philosophies, and theories of social service work from an anti-oppressive and social justice framework. In 2012, James was charged with assault and uttering death threats. While in custody, he was placed in medical segregation for his safety as a result of injuries sustained during a fight. The guards kept others in prison away from James for his protection by putting him in segregation. However, solitary has well-documented detrimental effects and is internationally considered torture if it's longer than 15 days. Although he had not requested segregation, James was kept there for 47 days. In the end, he made the tough decision of taking a plea deal because he felt it was his only real option. A plea deal means that the defendant has agreed to plead guilty to some or all of the crimes in exchange for some concession from the prosecution, such as reduced charges or less jail time. James shared his story with CCLA and his experience with bail and pretrial detention, a story that is so similar to many that often go unheard.
0: Sitting in bail court and bouncing back and forth, I've ranged from one day up to, um, yeah, 21 days. Three weeks of uh, five full days. You're shackled, you're brought up, you're shackled to a stranger. Sit in front of a court, you don't know what's going on. People are reading off these charges. All this commotion going on in the courtroom, you're trying to stay focused, you know. And at the end of the day, you're still not being directed questions. No one's answering you. You're not even allowed to speak in the courtroom, in the body of the court, and you're the prisoner. And basically, you know, you're stripped away of all of your rights you know, before you even found guilty. That happened for three or four days in a row. You'd get to the thing, you'd go through A and D. You know, you're strip searched again in front of three or four officers. And every time you interchange from a courtroom to a cell, from the cell to the paddy wagon, from the paddy wagon back to the prison, it's the same routine. You're strip searched, you're humiliated. You know, you're belittled, you know, they're barking orders at you that you gotta follow. And if you refuse to follow them, you get thrown in a hole. Right? You get thrown in segregation. And um, actually, to be honest, with you, it's, it's, it's humiliating. Like, just that, that feeling of um, scared, angry, confused. You now, anytime I had a question, it was shut up.
1: In law, pretrial detention is supposed to be approached with restraint. These are legally innocent people. And bail, as it was initially envisioned in the 1970s, was supposed to be a a summary procedure to quickly determine the liberty of an accused. So the primary grounds for detention, you don't think the person will show. That was the key focus. Will they show? And if not, then maybe we need to detain them. And generally, unless there are real concerns about appearing in court, or serious concerns about reoffending while on release, the law suggests it's best not to keep legally innocent people in prison.
0: You're eating, first of all, cold meals all the time for the first few days, because you're bouncing around uh, from the courthouse and to detention center. Uh, and, and, and you know what, and, and you'd be surprised how many people get robbed for their food. No, and there's no protection, and it's, you know, you get some poor young kid you know, I don't know how many kids, I saw 2 or 3 kids get you know get their lunches taken, uh, you know their sandwiches taken in the cord cells uh, because they're, they're terrified, can't speak up for themselves, they're scared. And that's the thing, right? And part of being in custody is that we have a right to be protected, you know, and, and, and there isn't, there isn't. I don't know how many times I've watched people get punched out by their own cellmates. By the time the guards get to them, they're, they're unconscious. You no know, bleeding from the face, you know. Um, you know, you're mixing very violent offenders with, with people of white collar crimes, or you're know, you mixing dope dealers with um, you know with addicts. Right? Protective custody now is up to like thirty percent. Um, the whole thing is, it's the same thing. You know? um, you can check yourself in, you can check yourself out, but they um, put people in PC that are the ones that get punched out, not the violent offenders. All right you now, the ones that are having their rights trampled on, are the ones still getting punished again. After they take them down the medical bay and they fix them up, they stick them in PC. You know, what do they do? They they take the person and go send them in segregation for seven days. After seven days, bring them back up to the exact same cell block. right? And, and I know there's only so much in moving around, so much integration, so much things they could do. right? But, you know, again, the victim is now being victimized again because now he's the one that has to get moved out of the cell block. He's the one that's got to get moved, put into PC. You know, or where the um, the perpetrator, you know, the one who's doing all the assaulting on the cell block, you know, goes down for a seven day vacay in, in isolation. You know, what I mean, comes back up and he's back into his same home, he's back into the same cell, and that's the way things are done.
1: Everything points to this bail process being really overused over time. The most recent data we have from 2018 suggests that now up to 60 percent of people in provincial prisons are remanned people. That means that only 40% of adults in provincial prison has actually been convicted of anything. And in Ontario, it's higher. It's about 68% of the population is remanned. So that means that only 32% of the people in our provincial prisons have actually been convicted of anything. The rest are legally innocent in that bail process. And while some people may think, well, it's obviously just more serious offenses, more serious crimes, the nature of crime, like what most police see, is relatively minor things. And when we were looking at uh, court data in Ontario, we found that about 40% of cases started out in the bail process, which seemed really high. And it wasn't all violence. In fact, the majority, about 54%, was non-violent offenses.
0: People get knocked out because you walk in front of them or watching TV, right? So, so, you know, so you're eating. If you're in a cell sometimes with four people, and if you're the weaker one, you're losing your food. And what are you going to say? You're going to go tell the guards? And you know then what's going to happen? You're going to get punched out again. And again, and again. And eventually what they're gonna do is bounce you from cell to cell to cell block to cell block to new cell block. I mean and the guards let it go on. The guards watch people get punched out. Uh, I remember back in ninety five I did some time in the dawn. And they used to have fight nights. Every Friday night was a fight night. The guards knew about it. Did nothing about it. They're outnumbered. At the end of the day, there's so many inmates they can't deal with every complaint. Then it takes three or four weeks. By the time your complaint gets looked at, you, complain, look, you know, you've either made bail or you know you've been moved to a different range. Or by the time it comes, it's you know it becomes such a petty problem that it's not even worth following through on.
1: Typically, you're held in a maximum security facility, so you're placed in the most secure setting, and it's what you might call dead time. It's just sitting in a cell indefinitely, waiting for a bail determination. Or if you've been formally detained, you're trying to navigate your trial. You might be going back and forth to court. You're appearing via video link. And typically, you're really desperate for communication with lawyers or with family. Uh, because again, this has happened without warning. As you're first detained, you're just taken by police to a custody facility and your process processed. Well, you may have child care or housing issues you need to address. You need that phone call. You're obviously desperate to talk to a lawyer.
0: On my last case, within three days, I lost my apartment. Everything in my apartment was um, ripped off. You know, somebody was in my apartment that shouldn't have been in my apartment. The worst part was cops were told by me as well. She's not on my lease, and she's not to be in my apartment. They gave her the keys to my apartment. So this is all in my head for the three days while I'm bouncing from court to court. I lost my job because I couldn't contact my employer in those three days. Couldn't get a hold of my lawyer. At this time, I couldn't get a hold of no family. So, um, by the time I finally got a hold of somebody, I got a hold of my best friend, and he had told me at that time that my apartment was gone, ripped off. Cops were actually even called three or four times there because friends even tried to get her out. But she was squatting now and throwing parties at the house. It's because of that incident, like I said, um, you know, I'll set back my, my place, everything I own. Um, I'll set back a job, um, even my own serenity, my peace of mind. The court system can't give that back to me. No amount of money, no amount of, rep- no, no amount of repayment, none of that could ever get back the, those, uh, those three days of going insane. And all it would have took was uh, one phone call. One phone call to a cell phone, even. A phone call of my own choice, instead of just to a lawyer. When you're an adult you don't get that choice from a parent to a family member you get a phone call to your lawyer that is it to your lawyer you get one call until you don't arrange and situated right and like I said um, you know I'm still a year and a half later I'm still rebuilding from that that stint right
1: but there are long-standing problems uh, making communication grotesquely difficult uh, in Ontario for example you had to call collect which is extremely expensive. To a landline, you're not allowed to call cell phones. Now, this was an arrangement that was made between Ontario and Bell, and they received some bad publicity over this earlier in the year, earlier in 2020. And Ontario claimed it was going to renegotiate their contract with Bell. I have no idea if this policy has changed in any meaningful way, but what it means is that not only would you need to be able to call someone to know that you, that it's a landline that you're calling. So do you know someone who still has a landline and do you have that number memorized? Because obviously you don't have access to your phone with any phone numbers in it. And there's obviously a real urgent need to contact a lawyer, right? You have to prepare a bail release plan, or, or if you've been formally detained, you have to try to work on your defense. But to contact a lawyer, you have to reach them at a landline number answered by a live person. If an automated system pick us, picks up, you're disconnected. And if someone, a live person answers, but they need to transfer you to the person to talk to, you're disconnected. So as a consequence, many are unable to contact lawyers through the regular phone system. It causes huge delays and obviously huge stress.
2: A call can be a lifeline for those in prison, a connection to the outside world. In order for an incarcerated person to make a phone call, call recipients must either have a landline or a cell phone that accepts collect calls. They must also agree to pay the costs associated with the call. In 2013, the Ontario Ministry of Community Safety and Correctional Services signed a deal with Bell Canada to charge call recipients roughly a dollar a minute for local calls, and even more for long-distance ones. These fees can add up quickly and put a lot of pressure on friends and family members, especially those from a lower socioeconomic status. Time constraints are also difficult. If someone wants to call a toll-free social service agency, for example, they could be placed on hold and lose precious time, which is problematic because they are only allowed a maximum of 20 minutes per phone call. According to a CBC investigation, Ottawa criminal lawyer Michael Spratt obtained documents in 2013 that show the Ontario government gets a commission for every collect call made from provincial jails.
0: My last little stint last year, it took me 37 days to get a hold of someone because, you no, know, nobody has house phones anymore. No you can't call cell phones collect. And that whole time I was in segregation. I was terrified. I didn't know if I had anyone ever representing me. You know, I wanted to get a hold of my lawyer. I couldn't even get a hold of my lawyer because I don't know. I know it's my responsibility to know my own lawyer's number, but at the end of the day, you know, if, uh, if I don't know it, I had to reach out to somebody. You know, like, that should be provided. I was asked if, if how, was, how was I feeling at that time. Because I was upset in the shroud. I told him I felt very suicidal. I got stuck in an isolation cell for uh, 47 days. Right, with no other, no other inmate. Nothing to read when you're in isolation all you get is a Bible. You know, you don't even get playing cards. And do you want to talk about going nuts? All you're doing is talking to yourself, right?
1: It's also much, much more difficult to mount a defense while you're in detention than if you were released, right, with an appearance notice or through other means. The longer you're in detention, the more likely you're going to lose your job, your housing, possibly your children, you know, imagine you're working and you suddenly stop showing up. You can't notify them because you can't access a phone. Chances are you're simply going to be fired. And the real concerns is that it actually gets much easier to plead guilty whether or not you've done it. Just to get out right now immediately rather than attempt to negotiate this long, complicated kind of Kafkaesque process. Especially if the offense is more minor and you're already marginalized. You know, it's a minor offense. Just plead guilty to it and you're out right now versus wait for weeks or months you don't know.
0: Now, if you're denied bail, you know, like I said, you've got to wait your 90 days to apply for um, high court bail. And then it's the same process. Then you can spend another you know, three, four, five days in high court bail. My last thing last year, I ended up pleading guilty to something I wasn't guilty because I just couldn't wait a year and a half of my life. Now, three of my convictions are that reason, you know? Yes, I gave up my right, but you know what? You sit in jail for 90 days, 100 days, and watch people get punished, out. you're starving, you're hungry. You can't get a hold of people you love, and you're getting visits once a month, and we're supposed to tough it out? We're supposed to tough it out? And I know I could take a plea? You know I'm innocent, I know I'm innocent, I could take a plea to get me out the next day on time served? Yeah, I'm gonna take a plea. Because you don't think about it at the time. Right? I'm in a situation now where I lost my, um, I lost my career because of it. I knew I was innocent, right? And, and the matter I'm speaking of now is, uh, is come back to bite me in the ass, right? Well, I lost my career, right? all the time and effort I put into school. I took the lesser of the two evils, right? Not realizing, okay, when I get out, and I mean? How it's going to affect, right? Like I said, when you're in there, you're looking for the quickest way to get out and get back home to your life. The rest of it, you know, the job and all that shit really doesn't matter while you're there. All you want to do is get out, you know, and you can talk to people that's in there for 20 years. You never get used to prison. I don't give a shit. I've, I've, I've met a lot of people I know, a lot of people that have done long time. That's all they dream of. That's all they think about is going home. Those letters that family, that family writes to them or those visits, that's the only thing that keeps them alive.
1: In order to get out, you'll very likely need a surety. Now, that's someone who will say that they will make sure that you're going to follow your conditions. They're going to make sure that you show up. They're on the hook if you don't show up or you reach your conditions. So finding a surety can be intensely difficult for a lot of people. How do you arrange it? You can't get on a phone. And to be a surety, you, you can't have a criminal record and your suitability will probably be vigorously challenged.
2: A surety is a person who comes to court and promises to a judge or a justice of the peace to supervise an accused person while they are out on bail. A surety also pledges or promises an amount of money to the court by signing a type of bond called a recognizance. Becoming a surety is a big responsibility. A surety must sacrifice taking time off work. And if the accused individual fails to show up in court or does not comply with any bail conditions, the surety risks losing some or all of the money they had promised to the court which can range anywhere from under a 1000 to over $10,000. Although there are no laws which prohibit someone with a criminal record from becoming a surety, a judge or justice of the peace may discount those with a record based on finances, personal character, and background.
0: So there, there's another thing, right? Like, you know, you, you arrange a an surety, and then next thing you know, you think you're getting out that day when the sureties don't meet the criteria, because, you know... You, Nobody with a criminal record can bail anybody out either, right? So that limits, I hate to say, but when you are a criminal, most criminals hang out with people like themselves, and I'm going to speak from my own personal experience. Most of the people in my family have a criminal record. Who else am I going to look out to to, to bail me on somebody that don't know me? And there's been a lot of times, like I've, um, there's times I've, you know, I've even had to use the bail program and was denied that because, um, you know, again, you know, my record or, uh, the, the seriousness of the offense. But with the bail court, it varies on every um, uncontrollable aspect that you can see. It depends on your surety, It depends on your lawyer's availability. Um, it depends on, I know there was a few times where I've had to have, get psych assessments done, ordered by police. So you're bouncing back and forth.
1: You know, again, everything points to, I oh, just plead guilty and get out now. It's easier and worry about the ramifications later.
0: And this is the worst you know. I don't know how many people I would see just say, oh, traverse it. Screw Bell court, traverse it. Let me get in front of a judge and plea. Now, they would rather do the 30 days, 60 days, and 90 days. You know, because you, at the end of the day, if you plan on fighting something, you're spending two years in prison. And I know they talk about this, right, how we have a right to a speedy trial. Now, try telling your lawyer you want to waive your right to a disclosure. Try telling your lawyer you want to waive your, your right to pre-trial. They don't, because you know what? They still want to get paid at the end of the day. You get legal aid. So they want to milk it. I, I did 37 days in the medical uh, segregation, but in total I did so 90-something days before I pled guilty. And the whole time I'm trying to tell my lawyer, I want a speedy trial, I want to waive my rights, my disclosure, I want to waive everything. I remember years ago, you'd be able to get a trial within three months. If you waive all your rights, all your information, you just go straight the trial and deal with it then. Now, you know when, when he told me it was eighteen months, I was just thinking, like, there's no way in my like waiting eighteen months. So,
1: uh, if you're released on bail, you tend to be released with multiple conditions. Again, although the law says you should be released on the least onerous forms, no condition, no requirement for surety. We're not doing that. We kind of start off at the top of the ladder. So everyone requires a surety, sometimes multiple sureties, and they're all given a volume of conditions. Curfew, don't communicate with certain people, don't go in certain locations. For kids, they used to put on, and I don't know if they still do, a really broad condition of keep the peace and be of good behavior. So that means anything. I remember sitting in court watching a youth getting that condition on their bear release, and the JP reminded them that this does mean anything if they don't make their bed or wash their dishes, that your parent can call in and say they're not being of good behavior, so this is failing to comply. And if you don't follow those conditions, then it's a criminal offense.
0: When I was younger, I had the one condition where I was under house arrest, I couldn't leave. But uh, as we started to become an adult, um, I've always had the, well, know, never to carry firearms. Uh, I've always had, you know, never to carry any kind of weapons or sharp weapons. Um, I remember one summer, and talk about unrealistic. Um, like I couldn't even carry a box cutter knife, and I was working in the construction industry. I couldn't. I had to have a friend of mine to bring my tools to the workshop to the site, and then for me to go to the site separately, away from my own tools actually also had a, a condition at that time not to have a cell phone, which I don't understand, I don't get it. Uh, I've always had, you know, stay away from the consumption of alcohol and drugs, that I could understand. You know, um, it's not realistic. Um, biggest ones, too, is curfew, you know. Like, um, when you become an adult, right, you, you've got uh, you got responsibilities. Um, you know, like the 6 o'clock or 8 o'clock, you know, it gives you enough time to get to work and come home. You know? Now, what about grocery shopping? What about going to pay my bills? I can't do it during the 9 to 5. I'm at work. And then most times they even tell you you're not even allowed out on the weekends, depending on some of your conditions. Uh, At one point, it was uh, I became a burden on my family because they had to do my dry cleaning. They had to do my groceries. Um, You know, they had to pay my bills. I remember my mom had to come back and move in with me. You know, to, to um, look after all of my outside influences, all of uh, my responsibilities, because I just, uh, part of the condition was I wasn't allowed to. Straight to work and straight home. Straight to work and straight home. Some of the other conditions I've had to do is I've had to take anger management. And at the end of the day, the anger management course has done nothing for me. Anger wasn't my problem, drinking and drugs was. You know, I've had to take PARDs PARGE program and I've never been in an abusive relationship. PARDs program is violence against uh, your partner. Violence against a female part, like whatever your partner is, right? Viol- and it's it's a lot of it is aggression based, and it's at the same time I've never struck any woman I've ever been with, but it's court ordered. I have to take it. Don't get me wrong, I still learn from it, and you know, you know, I still try to keep an open mind in it. But you know, there was no ever no correlation prior to anything that had happened. All they know is you know they look at the piece of paper in the synopsis, see that a female is involved, and the allegations are this.
2: Your 2011 report with Nicole Myers mentions that over supervising low risk defendants and placing unnecessary conditions on their release has a negative impact. This tends to increase the likelihood of a person breaching a condition and receiving an administration of justice charge. The cycle of reoffending is often referred to as the revolving door of justice. Can you please tell our listeners what an administration of justice offense is?
1: So the classic example with adults is you find that there's a very serious drug addiction and you put then on an order, well, don't don't do that drug. (laughs) Okay, you're going to violate that the second you walk out the door. So then you start accumulating lengthy criminal records, all with failing to comply. And your likelihood of being granted bail or getting out is further and further reduced. Again, they're still presumed innocent. The initial offense that triggered this Hasn't been resolved, but you're racking up more and more criminal charges. Well, once you get that, there's now a reverse onus on you once you're in the bail process a second time and you fail to comply. Now the onus is on you to show why you should be released, and you are much less likely to be released at this point. Now, when the bail laws were put in place in the 70s for adults, there were no reverse onus offences. We have just ex. Expanded that list and we've just added to that. So there's so many reverse onus offenses now. There's no empirical need for change. There's no evidence that if you're charged with this offense, you really should have to prove why you're out. It's just, we don't like this offense. It's in the media. We got to look tough, make it a reverse onus, and now we're good. When, When you're looking at bail cases, youth bail cases, the research that I've done suggests that the kids that have more conditions more likely to come back for failing to comply than those who had fewer conditions. There's no difference in the likelihood of returning to court for a new you know, criminal offense, like a substantive criminal offense, a violent offense, a property offense, a drug offense. So that is, more conditions didn't seem to translate into a reduction of the likelihood of offending. There was no difference that way. But what it really did do was significantly increase the return to court for failing to comply. So conditions didn't seem to reduce offending. It actually increased it through these failing to comply charges. And remember the fact that many charges end up withdrawn, the charges that triggered the initial bail hearing. Well, with kids, it's no different. In, in the sample that I looked at, about half of them had all the charges withdrawn that triggered that initial bail hearing and the imposition of all those conditions. So what this means is that although the charges related to the bail hearing have been resolved by way of a withdrawal, well, we don't have enough evidence to convict for a robbery or we had the wrong person or whatever, but you didn't attend school and that's a criminal offense. So we're going to pursue that. So now we have cases where, you know, the initial trigger offense is gone, but we've created these failing to complies that's going to keep them involved in the court process. Um, And ultimately, they might get a criminal record solely for not attending school while the initial offense ended up withdrawn. So at that point, I think you really have to wonder, what are we doing? What, What problem is this trying to solve by having a system functioning this way? You know, all of this, again, it suggests that bail is not being approached with restraint. The fact that the majority is nonviolent, the fact that almost a third in Ontario end up with charges withdrawn, that a large portion of the cases have failing to comply and administration of justice charges in them. All of this speaks to this is not restraint. We're overusing this system. And tracking those that went through the bail process, ultimately, almost 30% ended up with all the charges withdrawn. That was close to 18,000 cases. And a quarter of them took three or more bail appearances till they realized all the charges should be withdrawn. This is a huge expense, huge expense for the state to house people in maximum security facility settings for weeks or months, however long it takes to process. And it's a huge expense for people. You might, In this time, you might have lost your housing, your employment, your children, and then what, are you supposed to be grateful that the charges ended up withdrawn?
0: I had a lot of hatred for the, uh, the justice system. No matter if you were a lawyer, a crown attorney, a police officer, anybody uh, from that point on, I, uh, I really developed a, a strong hatred for authority figures. And, um, and it's continued, right? Every time I got arrested, I became defiant. And uh, ever since that one incident, just the way I was treated, I uh, was very close-minded. And, and it continued to, um, to escalate. You know, the next time I got arrested, I ended up assaulting police officers because I knew the situation I was going in. You know, hearing that door slam behind you, you know, and, and, and it's, uh, it's like, what a feeling. I like, let the door close and it's just like, they become an animal.
2: According to Stats Canada, among the provinces and territories in 2017-2018, eight jurisdictions had a higher proportion of remanded adults versus those in sentence custody. In remand, meaning that they have not been tried or convicted of the crime which they are being held for. In Alberta, 70% of those in prison have not been convicted. In Ontario, 69%. Manitoba, 69%. Nova Scotia, 65%. British Columbia, 65%. Yukon, 62%. The Northwest Territories, 58%. And Nunavut, 55%. Stories like James's are common across Canada, and the bail system has failed many which is why CCLA will continue to fight for the rights of the incarcerated. A big thank you to the team of amazing volunteers who put this episode together. We could not have done this without you. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe to Justice Versus wherever you get your podcasts and review reviews on Apple Podcasts. Before we close, a note of acknowledgement. We wish to acknowledge the land on which CCLA operates. Toronto and CCLA are in the Dish With One Spoon territory. The land I'm recording on today is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is also home to many diverse First Nation, Inuit, and Métis peoples. We're grateful to have the opportunity to work on this land. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you join us next time as we continue to learn, advocate, and educate on Canada's most crucial human rights issues. Until next time.